0: This is Keno Bokasa speaking to you. At 3 a.m. this morning, your army took control of the government. The DACO government has resigned. The hour of justice is at hand. The bourgeoisie is abolished. A new era of equality among all has begun. Central Africans, wherever you may be, be assured that the army will defend you and your property. Long live the Central African Republic.
1: This was the message that crackled through the radio waves in the capital city of Bangui on New Year's Eve of 1965. With only one president having served prior to this, the country would have had no idea that over the next 20 years, this one man would bankrupt the country, cripple its emerging industries, declare himself emperor and torture, murder and murder and or cannibalize hundreds of its citizens. You're listening to Anthology of Heroes, and this is the story of the bloody reign of Emperor Bakasa I, the cannibal emperor of Africa. Listener discretion is advised for this one. The Central African Republic is a landlocked country in the heart of Africa. Out of every country in the world, it's this one that has the lowest rate of life expectancy, the lowest per capita income, and the worst rate of literacy, with over half its population unable to read. Terrorism and civil war are rampant, making it one of the worst countries to be a young person or a woman. Over its 620,000 square kilometres are vast reserves of oil, lumber, Gold, cobalt, uranium, timber, and even diamonds. This country could have been something great. What happened? Well, I'll tell you. It all started back in the 1960s, when a flamboyant army colonel named Jean Badel Bokassa overthrew the democratically elected president, who also happened to be his cousin. The state we now know as the Central African Republic was a French colony up until 1960, a developing nation's path to democracy is always wobbly, and this was no exception. The first to champion the idea of decolonization and racial equality was a man named Bartholomew Boganda in the late 1950s. When he died in a suspicious plane crash, his cousin and interior minister, David Dacko, took over and became the first president of the Central African Republic. It wasn't exactly open democracy. Dacko ran a one-party state and increased the term limits. But it did seem like his heart was in the right place. President Dako invested heavily in the country's emerging diamond mining industry, but caught between not wanting to look like a French pawn but still needing their financial aid, he lost the popularity with his countrymen. After six years with his popularity at an all time low, Colonel Bacasa swept in one night. Bacasa was well known within the interior circles of the government. He came from good pedigree, hailing from the same tribe as both Dako and Baganda, and he was also a decorated war veteran who served in the French Free Forces. But I'm jumping the gun here, let me take you back a bit. Growing up, Bacasa's family lived a poor rural lifestyle, common to most of the country. Little better than slaves, they were forced to tap rubber trees which were refined into car tyres back in France. The industry was lucrative, but not for the farmers. Those involved were given aggressive quotas, and if they were unable to meet them, they, or members of their family, were beaten, mutilated, or killed. Picasso's father fell under the influence of a religious figure who preached anti-colonial sentiments when the French authorities found out they had him beaten to death in the town square as an example. A week later, his mother, overwhelmed by grief, committed suicide. The young boy was taken into a French orphanage, where he busied himself in French literature as he learnt to read. He was particularly fond of a French author called Jean Bedel, So much so, in fact, that the nuns gave him this nickname, which never left him. After a few odd jobs, Bokassa joined up to the French colonial army. Over a 20-year period, he rose through the ranks, scoring numerous medals for courage and impressing his superiors with his fascination of French culture. While in Indochina, he married and had a child with a 17-year-old Vietnamese woman who he lost contact with after he was recalled. In 1959, he returned home to Bangui, the capital of the Central African Republic. And as an esteemed soldier and worldly traveler, a new sense of self importance returned with him. He immediately inserted himself into governmental affairs, and his cousin, President Dako, was warned time and time again that the man was mentally unstable and hungry for the top job. Dako seemed amused by the stories and casually played down his cousin's flaws stating that he was too stupid to stage a coup, and he only wanted to collect medals. Interestingly, Bacasa wasn't the only one who wanted Daco out of the way. The French also wanted him gone, as he was cozing up a little too close to Communist China for their liking. In fact, it's likely Bacasa knew about this coup and wanted to get his own coup in first. Imagine being poor old President Daco. It's not a matter of if the coup happens, it's a matter of when one of them happens. On the night of the 31st of December 1965, the, <clears throat> unthinkable happened. When Daco was out of the palace, Bakassa slipped in with his personal guard of 500 and overthrew the democratically elected, yet very unpopular government, with relative ease in a bloodless coup d'etat. Daco slipped away into France, and we'll get back to him later. On the first day of 1966, the citizens of the Central African Republic awoke to the voice of their new president.
0: This is Colonel Bokasa speaking to you. At 3 a.m. this morning, your army took control of the government. The DACO government has resigned. The hour of justice is at hand. The bourgeoisie is abolished. A new era of equality among all has begun. Central Africans, wherever you may be, be assured that the army will defend you and your property. Long live the Central African Republic.
1: Picasa quickly swept aside the few fragile sprigs of democracy that the Daco government had planted. In the place of the National Assembly, he instituted the Morality Brigade that monitored bars and dance clubs for lewdness. He banned polygamy, female genital mutilation and dowry payments. He started works on a highway to connect villages to the cities, and he donated his first paycheck in office to building a new hospital. Okay, not so bad, right? A right-wing dictator, sure, but one who seems to want to bring his country into the 21st century. Bacasa did his best to shore up his popularity around the capital. Purchasing a fleet of Mercedes, he toured around the provinces, displaying his war medals and telling anyone who would listen that his coup d'etat was needed because communist China had infiltrated the Daco government and was slowly bringing the country down. While these stories may have bought over a few peasant farmers, internationally, no one was fooled. Apart from their neighbour, Chad, no countries would recognise Picasso as a legitimate head of the state. Which was a pity, because Picasso needed that foreign aid, particularly because he had raised the wages of all soldiers in the country to keep their loyalty. France particularly contributed a sizable portion of aid to the country, and being such a Francophile... Bacasa must have felt hurt that Charles de Gaulle, one of his personal heroes, would not recognize his government. Bacasa met with whoever would meet him, including infamous Romanian dictator Nicolao Ceausescu, a man who infamously constructed the most expensive administrative building in the history of the world, valued at 3.4 billion US dollars. Boy, I bet those two had a lot to talk about. Finally, in late 1966, after threatening to stop using the French franc as the currency of the country, President Charles de Gaulle accepted one of the many invitations to come tour the CAR. To Bacasa, this meant recognition of his legitimacy. Charles de Gaulle, however, did not feel the same and regarded Bacasa as an unfortunate necessity, privately deriding him with nicknames such as Papa Boc, meaning something like Little Beer in France, owing to Bacasa's small stature and skin colour. In fact, in one meeting with one of his ministers, unable to even recall the man's name, De Gaulle called out, Who is that idiot we have over in Bangui? Bacasa probably never learnt of his hero's utter disdain for him, and was just happy the French aid money had started flowing again. Good thing too, because by now Bacasa had a growing share of dissidents in his cabinet he wanted to take care of. Many of the lower-ranking pen-pushers who may have been plotting against him were quietly murdered and replaced with men from his own tribe whose loyalty was more obvious. Despite this, there was one man he could not shift. Alexandri Banza was a military man like Bacasa and was very likely the mastermind behind his original coup. The two men were close friends, but Banza was smarter and much more logical than the hot-headed dictator. The two had a major falling out during a discussion on the country's budget and when Bacasa demoted him to Minister of Health he began plotting a coup of his own. Bacasa used his new French connections to get a handful of French paratroopers to keep watch of Banza. Meanwhile, he had men loyal to Banza sent to the country's frontiers, bringing his own men closer to the capital. Banza, knowing the declining sanity of his old friend, should have kept quiet, but he couldn't. He had put this man in power, and damn it he should be shown some respect. He disclosed his plan to stage a coup to a close friend who played along, but immediately informed Bakasa afterward. Two of Bakasa's goons were sent to apprehend Banzai immediately. When they found him, he gave the fight for his life, well aware of the horrible fate if he was taken. Eventually, the two men had to break both of his arms before binding him and throwing him in the truck of a Mercedes. Once he found out that Banzai couldn't hit back, Bakasa arrived at the hidden interrogation room and beat him to within inches of his life. He was only saved when a minister advised him that maybe he should be kept alive for a show trial. The show trial was over quickly and the punishment was predictable and at this point probably merciful. Death by firing a squad. Before he was executed, there are claims that Bakasa had him beaten again until the point where his spine protruded from his back. He then slashed apart his face with a razor, dragging the wretched specimen through the streets of Bangui to his final place of execution. Bacasa was well and truly off the deep end at this point, but despite stories of these atrocities flowing out of Africa into Europe, there were very little, if any, ramifications. The USA and the rest of Europe knew the man was unstable, but had little political interest in the region. If France didn't want to rein him in, then, well, not my circus, not my monkeys. For all his faults, Bacasa knew where his bread was buttered, and chummed up with the French Prime Minister, Valérie Giscard. The two men regularly went on safari hunting trips in bacassa's private game reserve, and you can bet, whenever he touched down in Bangui, bacassa was waiting with open arms with a new diamond necklace for his lovely wife, who usually accompanied him. Throughout the 1970s, France increased their aid to the dictator's regime from 50 million francs in 1973 to 83 million francs by 1976. But this still wasn't enough for him. Bakassa privatized the most valuable industries within the CAR, including diamond processing. The French were thrilled about this, as almost the full share of the country's diamond mining was owned by a handful of French companies. And speaking of handfuls, Bacasa was known to carry around a handful of diamonds in his pristine navy suit pockets. I mean, you never know when you need to grease the wheels a little. The beautiful wildlife of Africa too was not spared, by Bacasa's own estimates of the elephants within the CAR were hunted for tusks. But there were no hospitals being constructed this time around. The money didn't even stay in the country. Instead, the dictator used his new fortune to build two beautiful French chateaus around the French countryside. Oh, and one restaurant, just for, you know, good measure. With the struggling country growing poorer while he enriched themselves, there were understandably some civil disturbances. Coup attempts were becoming a biannual event, crime too was rising, and people were going to the source. In 1973, there was an attempted break-in at one of Bacasa's palaces. The thieves got away empty-handed, but to Bacasa, that wasn't justice. As the perpetrators themselves couldn't be found, Bacasa went to a local jail and personally beat to death three men who had been convicted of unrelated burglary charges. but something was missing from the life of Jean Bedel Bocasa. Sure, his government and people lived in fear of him, but surely there was more to life. And so one day, probably thumbing through old photos and love letters he had written to Napoleon, he had a brainwave. He would become emperor. I mean, Napoleon was emperor, so why couldn't he be one too? And what do you need, a pope and a golden rod? Surely these couldn't be too hard to find. So Bocasa did what he always did in this situation— Groveled to the French government for more money. But upon hearing the reason for wanting it, France finally put their foot down. This was one step too far, even for them. Imagine if de Gaulle was still around. He wants the what? Can't do a French accent. Upset, but not too surprised, Picasso took the Kim Jong-un strategy and deliberately antagonised France. He opened up negotiations with China again And even more bizarrely, he met with Colonel Gaddafi in Libya and converted to Islam. Backing France into a corner, they sighed and opened their checkbook once again to Bokassa. Or Saladin Ahmed Bokassa, as he now called himself after his conversion. Contrary to all Bokassa's half-assed attempts to run the country, he put extreme care into planning the coronation of his ceremony. It had to be absolutely perfect, just like Napoleon's. Realising quickly that he needed a Pope, or at least a priest, he dropped Islam, which he was getting tired of anyway due to its ban on alcohol. He reached out to the royal families of Morocco, Japan, and Saudi Arabia to get their thoughts on how best to conduct a coronation. In one of the most strange crossovers of my personal interests, he also reached out to the Greek government to understand the coronation of Constantine Paleologus, the last Roman Emperor from 1448. I suppose this fits, as the Byzantines were in as much peril as he was during this time. In December 1976, he announced over the radio the dissolution of the Central African Republic and the birth of the Central African Empire. Cue scattered applause. He also let his loyal subjects know that he was once again Catholic. It seemed stingy old Gaddafi wasn't bringing the dough quick enough. The coronation of Emperor Bakasa I had to be perfect. He had studied pictures of Napoleon's coronation and tried to mimic it in every way he could. The Emperor handpicked men from his army to be sent to France for lessons on how to make horses canter and rear on cue. The horses too were flown in from France. All white, of course. When the big day came, Bokassa had his fleet of 60 brand new Mercedes limousines drive through the impoverished and dusty streets of his capital as he sat in the air-conditioned car throwing out money to the crowd in a white-gloved hand. The ceremony was ludicrously expensive. His throne was an imperial eagle with its wings outstretched 3.5 metres and 4.5 metres wide. It weighed two tons and was solid bronze with gold plating. His gown, slippers and crown were all sourced from the same firms Napoleon used in France. His red velvet trimmed toga was embroidered with tens of thousands of pearls, as were his slippers, altogether costing around $145,000. His headpiece, of course, was a classically styled golden crown full of diamonds and a large map of the world where Africa was centred in the middle in gold. Once again trimmed with red velvet and sourced from France, it cost $2.5 million. The total estimated cost for the jewellery he and his wife, uh empress, war was $5 million. I'll be putting many photos of this ridiculous ceremony on our Instagram. It looks as stupid as you think it would. Picasso invited every world leader he knew to attend the ceremony, but none did. Not even his mate and Chad wanted to go near this train wreck. Later, when asked why no one had attended by a media representative, Picasso replied that, quote, they were all jealous that he had an empire and they didn't. Mm, I remember telling people the same thing about my Nintendo when I was 8 years old. With his coronation complete, the feasting could begin. In celebration of the event, Picasso had imported 40,000 bottles of 1971 French wine, 24,000 bottles of Moet champagne, as well as an equal number of Chivas Regal whiskies, the Emperor's favourite. Nice choice there, Picasso. At the end of the day, the celebration, which lasted only a day, came to around $22 million, about one-third of his empire's budget. France picked up most of the bill, but Emperor Picasso made it clear that any large companies that were not willing to be generous to the new emperor with gifts would have trouble operating in the near future. One gutsy diamond merchant named Albert Yolis provided Picasso with a flawless black diamond that he had fashioned onto an impressive gaudy ring. Picasso was thrilled and wore the ring everywhere, telling anyone who would listen that it cost $50,000. Little did he know he was wearing a shined-up bort stone, worth around $250. Jollis reckoned that the Emperor probably knew very little about diamonds, apart from them being shiny, and he was right. Though his coronation ceremony was snubbed by world leaders, the press couldn't get enough of it. Emperor Bacasa was understandably the laughing stock of the world for a few weeks. Back in France, it was all cringes and forced smiles. Their problem child was now on the world stage. People were laughing. But after the laughter subsided, people were appalled at the ridiculous waste of money of the ceremony itself. France was in the spotlight for keeping this lunatic propped up. It was now painfully clear to the world where their aid money was going. Bacasa or should I say, his imperial majesty, Bukasa I, considered the coronation a success. He wanted his empire to stand out from the rest of Africa, and boy did he get that wish. He was so impressed with how his men looked all dressed up in their nice French uniforms, he ordered them to be mandatory, and bizarrely ordered that all school children must also wear the French-style uniforms, which they needed to purchase, of course. Many school children found themselves turned away from their education if they weren't wearing the correct clothing, which in the African heat was stiflingly hot. As the food shortages spread, so did the protests. They were nonviolent mostly, children and teachers handing around leaflets denouncing the ridiculous coronation ceremony for what it was, a waste of money. But as you can guess, Emperor Bacasa was furious when he found out. He personally travelled to the district where the protests took place, The schoolchildren and their teachers were rounded up by his thugs and taken to a prison. There, the elementary schoolchildren were beaten to death, his majesty taking personal involvement in the torture. It seemed the sadistic emperor could sink no lower, but once he ran out of space to store the bodies, he had them frozen in the cellar of his palace, while others were fed to crocodiles. It's from here the infamous story of the cannibal emperor originates. The international press ran with the story and added in the unlikely addition that during Bacasa's coronation ceremony, he ran out of food, so he ground up his own people and disguised them as beef or pork. After these stories went international, the pressure on France became too much for them to just stand by. All the diamonds and the uranium in the world weren't worth endorsing this deranged psychopath for. On the 20th of April 1979, France launched Operation Barracuda a counter-coup to put David Daco back in power. The coup was over in a few hours, no blood was spilt, and no one was willing to die for their emperor. Meanwhile, Emperor Bakasa, or should I say again, Saladin Ahmed Bakasa, had turned up in Libya, seeking protection of his old friend Gaddafi, who was always up for anything if it involved pissing off the West. While he was away, he was sentenced to death in absentia by the Daco government, With his homeland cutting him off and Gaddafi probably getting tired of him sleeping on his couch, Bacasa tried his luck back in France, who denied his request for asylum. It seemed that no one had time for dear old Bacasa I. Things were looking bleak until the president of the Ivory Coast accepted his plea for asylum, stating, It is not for us to judge the acts of our unfortunate guest. God will take care of that. Picasso stayed there for four years, and according to some sources, he sold swimwear to help finance himself. Makes sense to me? Resume: Dictator, ten years, experienced in diamonds, budgeting skills lacking. After four years of sizing women for bikinis, Picasso finally got approved for asylum in France. Just like everywhere else, Picasso was an embarrassment there. The French ministers who had previously supported him wanted him as far away from the public eye as possible. But as usual, Bacasa preferred to bask in the public spotlight, and within a few years he had sold all his French chateaus and was so broke that his water and gas had been cut off. Bacasa told anyone who would listen to him, hint, not many, that three million of his quote, impoverished compatriots wished for him to return home and liberate them from the corrupt Daco government. And so, on the 24th of October, 1986, flat broke with a couple of suitcases, Bacasa, his wife, and his five children snuck out of France and headed back to Bangui. French authorities claimed they did not know he was planning to leave, and I guess that's a fair assumption. They wouldn't really expect him to head to somewhere where he had a death warrant. As soon as his plane touched down, Bacasa was immediately arrested and put on trial for a long list of crimes including illegal use of property, assault, murder, cannibalism, battery, embezzlement, and treason. The Palais de Justice in central Bangui packed with members of press from around the world. I imagine Bacasa probably glared at them thinking, Oh, you can make it for my trial, but you couldn't make it for my coronation, hey? Predictably, he hired two French lawyers. And much like the final episode of Seinfeld, all the people that Bacasa had ever wronged were trotted out to testify against him. A convincing paper trail was put together by the government accountant, which showed Bacasa's willful involvement in, in embezzling funds. One of the schoolchildren who survived the prison massacre told of how the dictator had screamed at the schoolchildren while they cried, and then personally smashed in the skulls of five of them with his ebony cane. Bacasa's personal chef testified that the emperor had commanded he serve him cooked up human flesh on several occasions. With his back to the wall, Bacasa cowardly tried to defer the blame to his cabinet ministers, and when that didn't work, tried to appeal to the laymen of the court by gesticulating I'm not a saint, I'm a man like everyone else. Many times throughout the trial, the dictator's infamous temper flared, and he stood up from his seat yelling at lawyers, jurors, or witnesses. The charge of cannibalism was a complicated one. For a reason I don't think I'll ever understand, consumption of human flesh was only a misdemeanor in the Central African Republic at this time, and when David Dacre had been reinstated as president, he announced an amnesty for all misdemeanor crimes committed under the reign of Bokasa. So technically, this meant Bokasa, even if he was found guilty, could not be charged for cannibalism. On the 12th of June 1987, Bokasa was acquitted on the cannibal charges, but found guilty and sentenced to death on all other charges. The emperor, who was usually full of macho bravado, wept quietly as his sentence was read out. Only a year later, the country's new president, Andre Kalingba, who gained power from Daco in yet another coup, commuted Bacasa's sentence to life in prison and then eventually 20 years in prison, all to be served in solitary confinement, but only a few years after that was released on compassionate grounds due to his old age. Picasso was released back to the village he grew up in. Never one to go quietly, he announced that he had been in secret talks with the Pope in Rome and that he was actually the 13th Apostle. Mercifully, he didn't hang around for much longer after this and finally died at the age of 75 from a heart attack. It's not clear how many of his 17 wives and 50 children attended his funeral. Sadly, his legacy was not left in the mud where it belongs. After his death, the state radio proclaimed that the Central African Republic had lost a quote, "illustrious man," and in 2010, President François Bozizé fully exonerated Picasso for his crimes dignifying him as a, quote, son of the nation recognized by all as a great builder. Well, that's the story of Jean bedel Bokassa, or more formally, his imperial majesty, Bokassa I, apostle of peace and servant of Jesus Christ, emperor and marshal of Central Africa. Ugh. It's a shame that the legacy of this man is not tarred with as much filth as it should be. Just like colonizing nations that skip over all the nasty things their empire did, it's difficult for a nation to stand up and admit that someone as horrible as Bacasa was in power for so long. I think this is particularly true for a struggling nation like the Central African Republic. It can be easier to inspire patriotism and trust in the government if there is a legacy that the people can be proud of. Since Bacasa's death, the road to democracy in Central African Republic has been very much two steps forward, one steps back. Claims of election fraud, forced boycotts, and threats of violence to voters have all made things that much harder. And for me, this is the biggest tragedy of this story. A country so rich in culture and tradition, with such diverse animals and scenery, is one that I will likely never get to visit during my lifetime. huge thank you to the show's Patreon supporters, Claudia, Tom, Malcolm, and Roll. A lot of people don't realize this, but this is a one-man show, so there's a big chunk of time that goes into research, writing, editing, and all that. I love sharing these stories, and it means a lot knowing you guys are enjoying them. Your contributions help me keep the lights on, sound libraries, web hosting, books, and all that. If you're not a patron already, we've got some really cool rewards, like having the option to read out some of the quotes we use in our episodes. If you want to go have a look, tap the link in our bio
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The SIECLA, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The SIECLE, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.